Welcome to Real World Recess, a podcast by Real World. We're here to celebrate the everyday victories of life in the real world, and just as importantly, to pay forward all the things we learned from failing along the way. We may look like grown-ups, but we promise, we still look forward to recess. I'm Genevieve. And I'm Jillian. And this is Real World Recess. We are here today with Bailey Richardson. Thank you so much for being here, Bailey. Thanks for having me. So Bailey is the co-founder of People & Company, an agency that helps people bring their people together. She and her co-founders recently released a book called Get Together, which shares their rich experience building community and provides guidance on how to authentically bring people together in today's world. Bailey was one of the first employees at Instagram and previously worked at innovative companies like IDEO and StoryCorps. We're so excited to chat with her today. Welcome, Bailey. Thank you. Welcome. We're so excited to have you in today to chat about your expertise building community. We're a community-oriented company, uh, and we're trying to connect people both through this podcast and through our product and platform. So we're excited to share your expertise both with us and with our listeners. Um, So we like to kick things off by asking, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, my God. I was somehow just an absurdly ambitious young girl. Uh, For context, my mom, um, my mom was sort of a remarkable woman. Uh, She was, she started out her career as the first female luggage loader at San Jose airport. So cool. Yeah. And then she stayed at United Airlines and worked her way up and was one of the first female pilots. Wow. Wow. So I grew up around a woman like that. And I just started having crazy dreams. Like I decided I wanted to be an astronaut or like a Supreme Court (laughs) justice. Like I was swinging really big. Awesome. So I I think I was just in the wake of my mom seeing her do something. And every time I would be with people and they would ask my mom what she did for a living or I would explain it to them, I would see people's eyes light up. And so I think I kind of got that in my veins and wanted to do something that was big and sort of groundbreaking as a woman, but also hopefully something that put me in a little bit of a position to show other girls that you could do whatever you wanted to do. And I don't know, maybe I'll be an astronaut. I'm not there yet, but (laughs) (laughs) still plenty of time. (laughs) (laughs) There was the first flight recently of a mother-daughter pilot. Was there? No, I saw that. That's so cool. How did I miss that? (laughs) We'll send you the article. Okay. It's been on my LinkedIn feed like pretty repeatedly. Oh my God. Wow. I'm really amazed I missed that. I'm bad at the internet now, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get on those communities. Yeah, seriously. Um, so tell us a little more about like, how did you get involved in the early days of Instagram? What was that transition like? Yeah. Um, so I went away to college and I grew up in a very practical family. Like I said, my mom was a pilot, which is a pretty like technical sort of like a plan A, plan B, plan G type career. And my dad, uh, was an engineer. And so I wasn't really exposed to creativity a ton, like especially art and all of that. And I went away to school and kind of bumped into that and just went full force into like art, art history. And when I graduated, I worked at a museum in San Francisco. And then I worked at a startup that was an art startup. And that was how I ended up meeting the early Instagram team. So Instagram was very tiny at the time. I think there were three employees, maybe four. 
and it was very nascent. And we had a bunch of people who were selling their photographs on our site, which was a marketplace, um, who started to use Instagram in the very early days and were posting their photos. And I was just like, hey, maybe we can do something together. We're both creative startups in San Francisco, like Fusion. I'll reach out to them. And I just guessed there were like three, like I said, three or four people working at the company at the time. And I just guessed one of the employees' emails. His name was Josh. And I was like, hmm, Josh at Instagram.com. Let's see how this goes. (laughs) Yes. And I sent him an email um, and we got coffee and even I think months later, he reached out to me because they were hiring. And we had just really gotten along in that coffee. Like there was a way of feeling like I met a kindred spirit who saw the world in a similar way and sort of walked away and nothing actually immediately happened. But down the line, um, when he reached out to me, I was ready to change jobs. And I got this email and I was, he sort of was like, do you know anyone who would want to come do this work? And I was like, uh, me? (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny because I think, you know, people talk about networking, um, right? I don't know if they talk about it so much anymore, but when I was coming out of college, like quote unquote networking was the thing to do. And you sort of went and threw your body in like a room for like a mixer and just tried to meet people. And for me, I think that has never really made a ton of sense, but there are instances in my life where one email or one coffee has actually like sizably affected my future. Um, and that that coffee with Josh was an example of one of those. So I got hired um, when Instagram had like probably somewhere between five and ten employees. Um, we didn't have an Android application at that time. It was like, you know, many, many vintages ago of Instagram. There was no video. The feed wasn't algorithmic. And I, I sat down in San Francisco in a small office with a team of people with a product that had momentum, but still like the future was very much undecided. Well, in the early days of Instagram, it was really like a photo editing app, right? Like it was like photographers or everyday people going in to just make their photos look maybe a little bit more polished or a little better. It wasn't Photoshop, but it was like, you know, easy and you can share the photos easily with people who you generally already knew. Yeah, absolutely. I think people forget that a lot uh, because it's become so much more. But the reality is, is I think most technology products, most products, period, need kind of a utilitarian, very clear entry point for anyone. Like, this is the immediate thing that I'm going to do for you that's going to make your life better. And when Instagram came out, it came out right when the iPhone 4 came out. Um, and Only the, one camera on that one? Yes. And <laughs> the camera was just so much better than any other camera that we carried around in our pockets. Um, and so many people, whenever I would interact with users, you know, you always want to ask them questions. And I'd ask people why they downloaded Instagram. And they'd all say the filters in the beginning. And it feels like so long ago now, but there was a very clear need of people who were generally visually oriented, who cared about how their photos looked, came to this app. And that set the tone for sort of what made the whole ecosystem, the culture of Instagram feel different from a place like Facebook or Twitter that didn't have that aesthetic bent. Totally. How did it go from sort of, you know, sharing photos, editing them and sharing them maybe with like your family or your friends to sharing them with the world in hopes of 
I don't know, selling a product, building a brand, personal identity. I mean, Instagram has really changed the way people interact with each other, some could say for better or for worse, but it's really become like a global platform versus just like, oh, I made this picture look a little bit prettier or I put a filter on it and called it art. Like, here it is. Yeah, that that is a big question. There's been such a big change. Um, for me, I, I think the one of the most interesting things about Instagram was that the two founders, Mike and Kevin, actually had a hard time selling the idea to investors in the beginning because they wanted it to be a public photo sharing app by default. At the time, anything photography related, investors were like, no, people don't want to share their photos. So one of the remarkable things about Instagram was actually, even from the very beginning, most people followed or interacted with people that they did not know. It was meant to sort of be these collisions of people out in the world. And so I kind of, the way I've come to see maybe metaphor for what Instagram used to be to what it has become, which might be a little harsh, sorry, everyone, um, is that in the beginning, I think it felt a little bit like going to a place like the Met Museum you're sort of like discovering other parts of the world or things you hadn't seen and being able to like see someone's life up close, like kind of a portal or a discovery tube into other lives. And now I think, you know, it, 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 it's the business model is to sell ads and in many ways it's become something the the design supports that business model now. And it feels more of probably like a shopping mall like it's all of us are sort of selling to each other because that's what the platform is kind of designed to do. And I think that that transition, you know, it's one of the tensions of marrying a business model with something that is social and emotional. And I think many people in technology are talking about like down the line now that these platforms are a little bit older, the implications of things like that. But for me, I think with a background in creativity and in art, I was so excited by those early days of just being able to see the world visually through other people's eyes. And that transition has sort of subtly snuck up on many of us. And I think um, we'll see where it goes from here. But I I definitely think it's changed a lot since those early days. Yeah. So in those early days, it sounds like the community was pretty small in terms of who Instagram appealed to. Can you talk about what that progression looked like when it just became this explosive, everyone has it in their pocket app? Yeah. Yeah. I think in the very, very beginning, the first users were designers. So um, I think this is an important point for anyone listening who's possibly trying to get um, a core set of users off the ground or even just like get a community going. You're looking for people that I'm using business language here, um, but people who have a very, very strong like product market fit with whatever you're building. Um, Sort of the folks that like 10 out of 10 get the value and put your effort into definitely getting those first like 100 people who love the product on your side. And for Instagram, I think a lot of people would have assumed that that would have been photographers because the app was photography. Um, But in those early days, a lot of professional photographers were very sensitive about sharing their photos online because they wanted to keep the rights and were worried about giving away their work for free, rightly so. Um, And also we're very skeptical of phone photography, like they sort of look down on it. 
Um, and so the, the earliest users were designers, many of whom found we found, or Kevin, the, the founder, um, reached out to on Dribble, which is a community where designers share their work and want feedback. So these were people that were not only visual and sort of like visually trained, but they were people that we knew already wanted interaction about visual like feedback. And so they set the very early tone for the site. But I think quite quickly after that, um, it started to expand outward into all sorts of use cases that we could never have imagined. Um, I think some of the most common ones, frankly, from the early days, we can all remember this, were like, food. People like, you know, you know, it's hard to tweet about food and your friends on Facebook maybe just don't want to see like 8 million pictures of each meal that you're taking. But people on Instagram, you can find other people that have that same interest in udon or whatever. Sure. Who've already eaten basically the path for you. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. people now browse menus on Instagram. Yes, absolutely. And I think the art world has also completely changed. I was coming from, um, working in museums and artists did not go on social media up until like a year or two into Instagram. And now I actually think you, it feels like you can't be a working artist and not be on Instagram because gallerists use it to find people and all of that. Um, so I think that there were some unser underserved or unserved types of people who didn't have connections to each other yet that by creating this tool, they sort of like flooded in. It was like water filling a crater. Um, so I think that that, and fashion as well. Fashion was always very big on Instagram. Um, so I think that those groups that are just like visually oriented and didn't yet have a place to collaborate, share, interact, what were the ones that showed up sort of like next almost immediately. It's interesting. You said in Get Together, people can't be what they can't see. Mm. Basically, you were providing access into a world where people otherwise didn't know what it looked like, whether that was what's the cutting edge, like what is Paris Fashion Week actually like? It's it just happened last week. I, like you could be there for all intensive purposes on Instagram yeah. by watching a live stream, by seeing bloggers, by following along. It, it probably, the predecessor to that was probably a lot more uh, anthropological and ethnographic in that like you could see what a country you've never been to or what a cultural subgroup that you've never seen might look like or that, you know, is around the corner from where you live. In New York City, there are so many kinds of people, like people of New York or humans of New York, dogs of the dogist. Like you can really see into people's lives, right, with photography and with the, the um, aligned text. Um, how has that sort of like changed from being exposed to something sort of interesting and new to basically being exposed to something that you should then want as your own? Mm, big. That's a very big question. And I, I want to actually maybe make a, a point too before I jump into Please. answering that one. Um, another, I think, important point, you just mentioned um, this quote, you can't be what you can't see, which I lifted off of the, it's a quote from many civil rights leaders. So I just want to make sure that I call that out. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you're running anything like a platform or a space where you're creating a culture, we intentionally, in the very early days of Instagram, search was really bad. Like you you couldn't really, the, the search to function just didn't really work. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of on our team, the community team's shoulders to curate and to show you what was possible on the site. So we intentionally knew that there were 
really interesting people in art or in fashion or in food who are starting to use Instagram to share their story. And we made a point of putting those people on suggested users or writing about them so that we could role model to other people that this was a place for that. So just anyone who's listening, who's thinking about um, not only how do we find people that this product really serves, but how do we sort of like educate and communicate people about the value, really think about putting people up on a platform or a pedestal so people can see the behaviors that you want them to be able to take. You know, as someone who's running a business, a company or an organization, you can see so much more than any one of the people who might be participating in it or like a user. So it's sort of your job to show people how they can use your tool or your platform. So I wanted to make that point. Um, and then could you repeat the question for what you just asked me? Because I feel like I need to make sure I fully understand it. Yeah, I just was curious to sort of think through seeing something, sort of exposing people to other ways of life versus exposing people to other ways of life and then basically asking them to become that. Yeah, I think Instagram, basically like, I studied anthropology in college. It was all about sort of understanding someone else's life, but not taking on, like you can't fully get there. So how can you sort of understand it without forcing your own viewpoints on that experience? Yeah. Um, but then Instagram to me now has become so commercialized. It's like, this is this person's style. You can now buy all of these items mm. and make it your own. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. I think that there's, we we definitely wanted to show, I think, some aspirational content in the beginning. And some of that goes back to the point that I just made of trying to show people where they could go, mm -hmm. like, or things that they could do on the platform. But I think when we tried to curate the site, many of the people we featured were within reach. Like, you know, it was like, if you want to take these photos, you can take these photos. Like, this is something that is not far beyond your own agency or power to become or to experience. Um, but I think now there, there seems like it's gotten to the point um, where people, the gap between people is really demonstrated on Instagram. And I'm not sure that I have uh, an easy explanation for that or a solution for that. I think it's been going on in media and entertainment for all of human history. And it's something that makes me sad. Um, and I think it's not an incredibly healthy way for humans to perceive reality or to perceive each other. And I think one of the big differences between how media used to work and now, I talked to someone in the stories in our book, I talked to someone who used to be a massive Mariah Carey fan and then ended up becoming her, like, kind of manager between Mariah Carey and her fans when she was 16. So she went to work for her idol at 16. And I, I asked her about why she was such a big fan and, like, why people are fans. Because I don't think I fully understand that psychology myself. And she was like, you have to understand, in the 90s, you didn't see celebrities very much. Um, Mariah Carey, anytime a photo would get taken of her, it would get published in like all of the magazines. Anytime she did any appearance, the fan community knew about it and would show up for it. And so I think we're in this world where 
there used to be like a metering out, I think, of some of this like aspirational exposure. And now it's just literally, if you want to, something that you could spend hours with every single day. Um, and I, I, I think perhaps the market might support that. So some of that might be up to us to understand how we take in and process that. There was less access to people and also to these concepts and places and food and travel and things yes. that they felt further away because they were harder to visualize. Yeah, and maybe there's something good about some of that distance. And I, I have a lot of faith in human beings and our capacity to like reset or change our behavior. And I think that's happened many times over again in the last five to 10 years with social media. And I sense that my friends are using it differently and it's changing. So we'll see. I think people will respond and adapt. I have a lot of faith in that, but I could be wrong. We'll find out. So switching gears a little bit to yeah. your work now yeah. um, with People and Company, the book you just released, the podcast you have, it sounds like what you've been able to do really effectively is build authentic communities, but also give people a little bit of a playbook as to how they can start to build them themselves. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to Jillian and I was that you really emphasize building a community with people as opposed to for people. Um, you mentioned this one story about the Mariah Carey fan. I'm wondering if you can share a couple of other examples of people who've really effectively built communities with people. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. God, this is my favorite question. Where do I start? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this book that I wrote um, with my, I primarily wrote it with my business partner, Kevin, who is absolutely my smarter half. He was the first employee at an organization called Creative Mornings. And he, when he started, there were four chapters in four cities, and he took it to over 104 cities. They're now in over 200 cities, and they're the largest creative community in the world, um, in-person creative community. And so I came from sort of a digital community building background, and Kevin came from very much of a physical community building background. Um, and uh, this book was an excuse, basically, for me to reach out to anyone I ever admired in community <laughs> building and be like, can I interview you? <laughs> so it's full of all the people that I had just sort of like pinned away an article about them. Um, so I remember years ago when I was working at IDEO, uh, someone shared the World AeroPress Championship with me. There was an NPR article about them. And the AeroPress is this very simple barista coffee device. It's like taking the extremely complicated espresso machine, which could cost you $10,000 if you're getting a nice one, I think. I always get the price wrong and everyone has to correct me, but it's quite an expensive thing to invest in. And it's much cheaper, very simple, basically like pump, like that you just push air through, water and air through. And these people have started chapter-based AeroPress championships. Uh, to, a couple of baristas did one in Oslo years ago with like a cake and like four or five people. And all these other people around the world were like, I want to do that too. And so they just gave them, all these different leaders in Spain or in China or wherever, sort of the template, the playbook to be able to host their own event. And so they now have, I think, like 80 to 90 World AeroPress Championships that go on all around the world. And so similar to Creative Mornings, it's this idea of if we wanted this to go beyond Oslo, this one place where we did it, we either have to like staff up our organization and try to like impose our sort of like opinions about what a good event is on all these other cities around the world, or we can just train people and give them the capacity and the permission to do this themselves. And I just think that model is a better model 
for in-person things in particular um, because it's more culturally specific and it's just much more resilient like and I think affordable like just frankly you can't scale up to do that so I think there's a couple of examples of chapter-based organizations like World Air Press Championship and Creative Mornings in there Um, and then Hmm. One of the other communities that I really like that I think takes a different spin on build with instead of for is this group that I fell in love with forever ago called Choir, Choir, Choir. But these two guys in Toronto um, at a birthday party 10 years ago wanted to surprise their friends by singing a song. And so they did this like amateur choir and they had so much fun that they decided to do it again and just got a space in a real estate office a friend worked at in Toronto and strangers showed up and they just got everyone to arrange a very simple participatory choir there live in the room. Um, And they've now been doing this for 10 years. Thousands of people come out. They teach people a song and in a room like one to 2,000 people will sing a song together. I did it with Kevin. We went to sing Imagine by John Lennon like in a rec center in Toronto but they've recently been to sing Hallelujah with Rufus Wainwright, who came and led the song down at the 9-11 memorial. They've had Patti Smith show up and sing her songs with them. Um, and so going back to that point of build with, not for, the thing that really stands out to me about choir, choir, choir is that traditionally a musician stands up on stage and sings at an audience. And there's a huge group of people that are sitting there basically inert. And that's the point, you know, you kind of want to like star stargaze and it sit in the beauty of that person who's going to entertain you. But Nobu and David just flipped that. And they said, actually, we have thousands of people in the audience. And what if they participate in this? And the output is really powerful. And so I'm just sort of fascinated. I think after seeing on Instagram how normal people could tell such amazing stories if you just gave them the right tools to do so. I started seeing how if you just turn people who we normally think about as passive or as an audience and you give them a chance to sort of become an active participant, I think it's so powerful and it's it's just awe-inspiring. And so I'm curious about people who are doing that in any way, shape, or form, online, offline, however. Is it a matter of like providing a platform for people or is it really empowering them with like tools or knowledge? Like what is the sort of, what does the starting point look like? Yeah. Well, this is, the book probably has like nine steps for this. Um, But I think the three things that stand out to me um, are tools, resources, and inspiration. So I think that inspiration piece is where it really starts Uh, people aren't going to participate in something they don't have a passion for or they don't feel emotionally connected to. There's, it's, it's a challenge to really resonate with people. I think like that. Um, and you're asking someone to contribute, to participate, to show up. Um, so I think making sure that you are offering people something that is not just possibly utilitarian for them, but something that is like emotional to them or solves like a need that is cathartic, I think is part of the magic of this is you're hitting on a passion point. And then from there, I think you kind of like start out with a low level of collaboration and you can raise it up, raise it up, raise it up as you offer them new tools, new support, things like that. 
One of the things we've thought carefully about at Real World as we've been building is doing things that don't scale. Mm. Um, and so, Paul Graham, you know, what's up? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shout out. Um, whether it's testing a new product or trying to solve someone's individual problem, um, curious for you, is it important to bake in that scalability to communities in the beginning or maybe the best communities don't scale? Do you yeah. have any, any thoughts there? Great question. Um, we recently interviewed on our podcast. Uh, we have a podcast also called Get Together, if you want to listen to it. Um, a, a guy named Cortland Allen, who started an online community called Indie Hackers. And it's basically people who are bootstrapping their businesses. And they traditionally don't get very much media coverage. Like you hear a lot about the companies that have big VC investment or, you know, really knock it out of the park. But people who have just like normal thriving businesses that are run on the internet often are working in obscurity. And so they don't have the connection points to learn from each other. And so he wanted to solve that problem. And he said to me this about this point of do things that don't scale, um, that you have to get the momentum going somehow. And in the early days, it makes a lot of sense to do high touch points. And how you make those bets is sort of the magic of it. Like, are you are you putting your effort, you only have so much time or capacity to do high touch point work. So are you doing that with the right people or the right projects? But you do have to, before you've created an entity that has any momentum or energy around it, you have to put in that extra work to get people on your side or to kind of make the right decisions. Um, so for him, he sent 150 emails, personal emails, to different people that he had seen were running bootstrap businesses and asked to interview them. And he wrote stories about like 50 to 100 of them to get the platform off the ground. And he, once he did that, he began to optimize the system. So a lot of the indie hackers community rotates around these stories and storytelling. And he now has like a form and a template and he's created a process around it that he can do so many more. But without doing that early work of getting sort of the train out of the station and even just testing that behavior, that activity, that action, you can't scale immediately. So I think there that if you want to grow a community, it does make sense to scale, but not until you've really gotten your first allies on your side um, and figured out truly what is the thing we do together. And if I, if I hit the nail on the head, it's something that's actually compelling. And then can I sort of document that and make that replicable? But we, you have to test those things first. You can't just like guess them and get them right immediately. I guess if you do, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In terms of, you said the you know, providing tools and resources, but mostly that inspiration is sort of what mm. kicks things off. This podcast is very much about finding inspiring people who are doing like they've sort of won it growing up or mm. they're sort of figuring it out or have figured something really key out about it. What are the things that you're sort of like an expert in as a as a grown-up? Like what are the grown-up things that like Bailey has got it down? Yeah. What can you inspire? in our listeners. God. Well, I mean, not to be like, well, it might be that honestly, like I, I think, you know, you guys are building a platform with this in mind, but there are, I'm not a tool geek. Um, and I think there are tools that can help you with adulting for sure. Real world. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Check it out. Um, but I think for me, the thing that, that has always gotten me through life and has helped me make, there's some decisions that are going to be quite personalized to you. And 
For me, the thing that helps with that is being thoughtful about who I ask questions of and looking for patterns. So I think that that's how I've really like made it through my life is when I ha- when I have a question around like how am I supposed to take care of my savings or like, you know, does it make sense to like try to buy a place or, uh, you know, I don't know, like health insurance in New York City. Trying to be smart about surveying the crowd, I think, is something that I I do to try to figure a lot of things out. And so I think some of the ways to think about doing that are don't just have one conversation, like have multiple conversations and look for patterns and then be selective about which information you take in and who you take it in from. Um, I think you're look, you need to look for people that are living lives, not just maybe in terms of their financial background or their value system, um, but they're, yeah, they sort of have like an alignment with you or who you might want to be and seek out those people and look for patterns amongst those folks to make decisions. So I think that's something that maybe I do do as an adult that's good. And then I think it's always important to call out that I think through my career and just um, where I grew up and probably the color of my skin, I think I've had an amount of privilege, but I've taken saving really seriously, like all of my life, even before I had a job where like it, I was getting paid very, very little in the startups that I worked at before, um, before we kind of like became a part of Facebook and Instagram had more capital. Um, But saving has been something that's been important to my mom and my mom's family. Um, And so I've taken that really seriously. And um, I think that's something I'm like proud of for myself is trying to like take a certain amount of money and just move it away from me and put it over in the corner and and try to think about um, my future beyond just like what's immediately in front of me. So one of the things that happens to young people is after you graduate from school and start out, you typically move somewhere new. Um, And oftentimes what we hear from users is that it's really hard to get set up in a new city. What did you do to find your your people, your community? Yeah, well, I just want to say that even though I studied this, I moved to LA and I really failed. (laughs) I really (laughs) failed at this. Like I felt very lonely there. And so I had to learn, like I went to the rec center and signed up for volleyball and it's kind of scary. But um, the thing I I would say is uh, when I moved to New York after living in LA, I had learned my lesson. And there's no shame in intentionally building community in your life. Like, I don't know why, but so many people just lean back and hope it kind of happens to them. But one of the beautiful things about the internet and uh, the modern world is that you can look around and see who's out there or like if there's a group that kind of feels like it matches your vibe. So for me in New York City, that's been this group called Downtown Girls Basketball. Um, I saw some photos when I was still on Instagram. I saw some photos floating around of really creative, like independent, fun women sucking at basketball together. And I was just like, what is this? (laughs) This is totally my vibe. And so it's a team for women who are bad at basketball. Um, And a lot of the girls are really creative people. Like they work in their artists or designers or fashion designers or graphic designers. And I come from like really appreciating that world. So I started showing up. I I went like alone to the first one, you know, and I was nervous. Um, But I started going and I make a point of going every week. And that's like the main thing beyond 
don't be ashamed of intentionally seeking out groups. I know it's scary, but put yourself in the space of like new people and take those risks. But the other point that I want to make to people is keep going. Um, I think one of the things that is the uh, sort of like bad side of having phones and having a million different options and being able to have coffee dates with like one person every four months is we don't build that sort of like social foundation that we can go to every week. The way I think maybe a lot of people two generations ago, a generation ago did with something like church or like the Rotary Club. But for me, what has fundamentally changed my life in living in New York City has been going to basketball every week. It's Tuesday nights. I do not let anything touch my Tuesday night. It is like blocked off on my calendar. So I think that those things are the points that I really want to make to people is like, Seek out a group that's exciting to you. Do some research. Be a little willing to be nervous and show up. If it doesn't exist, start your own. I started my own queer pool club, queer billiards club. You can come if you're in New York. Um, and then the second thing is go at least three times. You can't expect to like build a relationship or a new friend overnight. You have to keep showing up. So those are my two tips. Do it. If you need inspiration, read our book. Maybe there's a group in there that you can just join. <laughs> Even online, you can join the um, the potheads, the Instapot oh, yeah. Facebook community. Yes, absolutely. Over the, a million other people in there. Yeah, and there's great like book clubs on. There's so many things. So I think, yeah, just there's some kind of weird sense that maybe you shouldn't go join something intentionally, like almost like stigma about that. And let me just say the things that I have sought out have like added the most surprising dynamic value into my life because I would never have done that otherwise. So go go make your own reality, you know? Lean in, baby. Seize the day. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you had to learn the hard way? So maybe more mm. of a adulting fail? I think there, I feel like there's so many things that I'm I'm still learning. I think, I don't know if this is in the scope of adulting, but growing up, um, I always, I think like dating and like partnership is like part of adulting probably. <laughs> um, and the hard part at that. <laughs> yeah. It's a sort of like an impossible puzzle, you know? Um, but growing up, I always found that to be sort of like a weird, awkward thing. And I think later when I realized I was gay, that was like part of the reason why it was like so strange to me. Um, but I think I, I, I I'm still feel like I'm figuring out that line between chemistry and compatibility. Um, and I think as you get older, there's something not just about how much do I care about this person, but like how much do we philosophically work together and how are we like on the same team? with many of these things that are in the adulting category. And I tend to be, I'm a pretty emotional person, so I tend to just be like, if I love you, I love you, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, but I think that I want to be better at um, also seeing that very important piece of just being on the same team with someone else and how do you navigate these decisions or like find someone who's a good fit for you in that respect. So yeah, that's something that I think I'm definitely still figuring out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, adulthood's hard. The The thing that we've come to over and over again is that the real world doesn't really have a playbook for it, um, something we're trying to build, but it's so much of it is just learning one step of the way and learning from other people too. So stuff like this is really um, just helpful to pay it forward. In that regard, is there any way that you currently pay it forward in terms of everything you've learned um, just over the last few years, whether in your career, or personal life, anything along those lines? Yeah, I think it's something I want to do more of. Um, but the thing that stands out to me is 
especially as a woman, um, I think it's so powerful to have someone help you put your foot in the door. Um, there were many times when I was, I had, I hadn't, I didn't feel like anyone had any reason to take my phone call or to meet with me. And I had a few people do that out of a hundred percent pure generosity. Um, and a number of them were, were women. And I still remember those coffees and those meetings and, they're the type of thing, I think, as you step out into the world and, and the, you don't know if what your career could look like or you don't know, you don't yet have confidence in like your own capacity or like your stability in your career. Having a few people that I looked up to agree to sit down with me and talk to me or listen to me really mattered. Um, and so I try my best to always respond or like show up for people who reach out to me intentionally and thoughtfully because I had people do that for me. Um, so I think that's something that is very tiny, but it, it really matters in those phases where you feel like you need a compass. <laughs> and um, my parents' careers were just not in the same space as as what I have ended up doing. So it's been really important for me to kind of create like a chosen chosen set of mentors or chosen sort of like North Stars to look towards. And I've so appreciated people that have been willing to like engage with me, even though there wasn't frankly like that much materially in it for them or I couldn't offer them anything tangible in exchange. Um, so I, I try to take, to like respond and take meetings with people that reach out to me. Awesome. Uh, one of the things we ask in closing is uh, we sort of have this idea of your adulting folder, like mm -hmm. the place where you sort of put yes. the tools, the resources, the apps, the um, documents, the documents, the everything, the <laughs> forms, the things you really don't want to deal with, but kind of know you have to. Yeah. So you hide them away in this fun folder Great. for adulting. Great. <laughs> what is the superpower in your adulting folder? What is the one thing you're like, oh, I'm such a better grown up because of? Well, I don't know if this is quite exactly what you guys are asking for, but the one tool that I tell people about that people have not heard of that is remarkable is this app called Otter, O-T-T-E-R. This older man who got his PhD at Stanford in his like 40s, um, I met him and he built this app which has insane voice recognition technology, which sounds creepy, but it live transcribes conversations. So if you wanted, say we were doing this interview right now, you could just put it down on the table. It would recognize when each of us were talking as distinct voices and you would have notes from a conversation that you took. And I think for me, I learned so much from other people. I learned so much from doing interviews, from conversations, and to be able to like have a searchable, like I ask people for permission. This is not like I'm walking around just like, <laughs> you know, it's not on right now. But I think that tool to be able to have searchable, shareable like notes is pretty powerful for me. So I think I would call that out. Um, it's like also, an audio catalog. Yeah, so which cool. is great. And then I think, I don't know, for our business, we use 
like just stuff like DocuSign, Notion. Makes life so much yeah. easier. There's a lot of like really amazing tools to make you feel like you've just like checked off boxes. Uh, Expensify for our business is amazing. Maybe that's, I'm like rambling now. I'll wrap on this <laughs> final one. But um, I we have Expensify, which is one of the many different types of services that you can use for expenses. And um, I, I have like a personal report that I keep for my taxes. And before, I think I would just guess at like things that I may write off or donations that I made. And like I wasn't being as clear about it. And having a simple way, you can just take a photo of a receipt and forward it to an email. And then I just keep it all in one space has been like the nicest way for me to be clear about just expenses and how I'm managing all of that running my own small business. So I would just say, think about using those tools, not just maybe if you're running a business, but how they can show up for your personal life as well. Awesome. Yeah. So in 2018, you deleted your Instagram. Oh, we're going straight for it. Yeah. Um, Well, so in closing, how can our listeners find you? (laughs) Oh, thanks. Uh, God. Well, I've like, I'm like managed to, uh, channel a lot of my digital energy just straight onto Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter um, at Bailey Elaine um, or like send me an email. You can holler at me. Hi at people-and.com. We'll we'll respond to you. Um, Yeah, those are probably two good places. Yeah. Awesome. Thank Thank you you so so much, much, Bailey. Thank you. For those listening and feeling like they could use a little more real-world R&R, we've got you covered. Head to realworldplaybook.com for tons of real-world resources to take our course and to join our community. We're here to answer all your real-world questions. If you're loving the pod, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our channel for your weekly dose of recess. This episode was recorded and edited by our audio engineer, Andrew Holtzberger. Signing off, this is Genevieve. And I'm Jillian. And this was an episode of Real World Recess.